Through Valpert and the Team of the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance on the program. It's his fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every two weeks, Longenhagen endeavors here to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this week, we find Eric Longenhagen in Fort Myers, Florida, where he's attending games in the backfields, various organizational complexes. The Fall Instructional League is taking place there. Instructs is what you call it. Longenhagen passes along some specific names, but also generally and more interesting, I think, discusses how Instructs fit into the prospecting season. Additionally, I ask Eric Longenhagen about a 15-year-old Brazilian who recently touched 94 miles per hour in the World Baseball Classic, Eric Bardinho. Eric Bardinho also hit a home run for Brazil in the Little League World Series a few years ago. It's long and aching to speculate wildly, and he indulges me, on how many people currently in the world are able to touch 90 miles per hour, and how many of those people are 15-year-olds. It is a small figure, reckons Longenhagen, who also, in this edition of the program, discusses briefly a team who's drafted a pitcher, a high school pitcher, largely on the strength of that pitcher's spin rate, it seems. Someone told me that there was a team that drafted a kid who I thought was overdrafted, and that they based the draft pick on a pre-draft workout and the track man data that they got from that workout. That deeply compelling information and other deeply compelling information like it in what's to follow. And it will follow quite rapidly because there's not a sponsor's message. If there were a sponsor's message, it would be for SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. However, there is no sponsor's message. So instead, we direct our attention immediately to this conversation with Eric Longenhagen. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same lead prospect analyst, Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. just jet lagged and um getting a cold or allergies i don't know there's actually living things in florida so it might be that um do you feel that you feel that acutely you're in a place now because what you live in the deserts and everything Mm -hmm. it's different whereas the florida is full of what's humid foliage yeah bacteria humid yeah Bug, a lot of insects. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And also just a well, just a rotten, a rotten place. Where are you in the Florida? Fort Myers. Okay. Okay. And yeah, even I was talking. I'm staying with my aunt and uncle for a while down here before I go up to Orlando for a few days. And even my aunt is just like <laughs> uh, appalled. By some of the some of the things Floridians do, <laughs> but she lives there. She's a resident. Oh yeah, she's lived here like most of her life. I want to ask you a question first of all. You know that sometimes we'll begin our conversations, and um, I'll say, "Well, I'll say what." It's not a segment per se, Eric. I've mentioned this before, uh, but yeah, but oh, yeah. All right, <laughs> it's not a segment proper. But what we do is I'll say, uh, what are you up? What are you up to? What have you been up to? It sounds like you're in Florida. Mm-hmm. What what sort of ball is being played in Florida right now? Fall Instructional League. Okay. When does that begin? 
Uh, it depends on the team. There are some teams who don't start until the 26th, like the, some of the teams in the northwestern section of the, the state, uh, Phillies, Pirates. They, they don't start playing games until next week, but like I was already at the Padres and Rangers, uh, on Monday. In Arizona. In Arizona. Okay, right. Which is a different so, state. Different state, sure. <laughs> Yeah, and it should be noted because uh, um, in our last couple of conversations, we have stumbled upon some of the um, <laughs> some chasms in my education. Yeah, right. But but yeah. you appear to have correctly identified here in this particular case that Arizona and Florida are different. Yes, different states. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So good. Thank you. Uh, so fall instructs are a thing that begin to occur, and I assume well, you're right. It makes sense. Uh, my guess is right. The teams that have um, that have their facilities, like for example, their spring training facilities in Arizona, their instructional teams will be based there, and uh, yeah. the same sort of thing for Florida. Yep, and not every team participates. Like the Cubs, just sort of do their own thing, where they you know they have a, a bunch of kids in camp, and then they play like inter squad games. Uh, and uh, the Mariners are doing that this season as well. Okay, so what le- what level of player am I going to find here? It's mostly lower level guys. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who's played above uh, a ball down for instructional league. Last short there... season and 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 the lower levels. Uh, is it ever possible to find? I think this is a thing, right? There are there are leagues, there are affiliated leagues. In the Dominican, for example. Yes. And so maybe you might find – is it possible you would find a a young player who spent the summer in the – you know, in a team's Dominican affiliate, but now they're uh, – now they're stateside? Uh, yeah, that's – yeah. And you'll see um, a lot of like the, the July 2nd signees will make their debut stateside at Instructs. Okay. Is there – no, what, what I'm saying, so you just used that word instructs. Bef- previously, you used the what I think is the probably the more official term, fall instructional league. Mm-hmm. Is there an instructional league in the spring or any other season? No. Okay. I, I, in the spring, it would it's extended. It's extended spring training. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these are. It's not like yesterday I was at a game. There were like there was a drop of rain, and the umpires were like, "Okay, we're done." Because it's just not – they're not meaningful in any way other than, uh, t- you know, to get first looks at guys and, and check in where guys are entering the off offseason. Uh, but there's not any st- statistical record of anything. There's not uh, standings of any kind. Innings are rolled if they're taking too long. Uh, so there's – it's not um, – so it is really just like glorified practice very much like extended spring training is, but uh, they're just referred to in, in very different ways. Oh, extended. That's the other one. That's the one that happens in spring. We have extended. Yeah, extended and then instructs. So if I find myself ever in a in a, in a small group of scout scout types, they, we all have our um, sports. We all, we're all wearing uh, types of uh, performance wear, right? <laughs> Yeah, khakis, uh, running sneakers, uh, 
mm-hmm. and a polo shirt is the is your standard. Right. Yeah, a performance tee, or I you know a, a polo, something that you could golf in. Right, it's yeah. wicking away moisture Maybe the whole time. Today, hopefully, certainly okay. here. I hope. So I'm going to say I'm going to talk about two things, and I'm going to I'm, I might mention extended. I'll say, oh, I was down and extended. Can I say that? Can I say yeah. I was down and extended? Uh-huh. Okay. I want to say, oh. You say you should say, so I, I've been taking in extends. <laughs> now, that sounds like it might be like a um, like some sort of product I might use for a, for bladder control. Uh, no? I don't know. I think it's. Didn't, Sexual dysfunction? Didn't Marie Curie invent extend? <laughs> I, no, but yeah, you, yeah, just you can say extended and right. And so, alternatively, I would say instructs. Looking forward, looking forward to instructs. instructs. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping to get some good looks at instructs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then they'll say, "Oh, how, what? How many teams do you have?" Oh well, <laughs> let me count quietly to myself. <laughs> I would answer, and I would say, uh, I would bet. Now, I now do do do. do are the numbers different in terms of coverage in Arizona, Florida? Because Florida, like the, the driving different, the driving times are much greater, aren't they? Yeah. So just talking to some of the guys who I'm, I'm just meeting many of them here in Florida. Well, because uh, you work, you work Arizona. Yeah. Uh, most you, of them just have a team here. Whereas in Arizona, uh, there are, I know guys who have, you know, two teams. I know guys who have four teams. Uh, but no one is tasked with everything, even in Arizona, except for me. But that's my own doing. Uh, oh, okay. But- so when you say you're covering a team, now, uh, does my, I'm a scout. I'm covering instructs. Uh-huh. My team has assigned me here. Or we've agreed this is what I'll be doing. What sort of report? And if you don't know the whole thing, Eric, that's unreasonable for me to expect to expect that you would. So don't feel – I don't want you to feel as though you're failing at your job. In that, okay. And I don't want you to think that like Dave David Appleman is listening in and he's going to he's gonna just break in and fire you. Like one time I was fired from Nintendo that way. I want you really? to – All right. We'll have to talk about that another time. All right. We'll we'll put, put, I'll put in your question. Nintendo. I don't want you to think of it like that, but what I want you to say, what I want you, to, or you know, as far as you know, what what sort of report are they supposed to hand back? Is it are they trying to are they getting full coverage? Or are they perhaps attempting to uh, maybe create a pref like an org pref list? Uh, I think based on what I've seen, and this isn't I haven't had explicit conversations with anybody about any of this stuff, but it, it's business as usual. Guys are taking the same type of notes that they are during the regular season, as, you know, the same that they would if they were scouting players at an, a minor league affiliate somewhere. I think teams know that any time that uh, they're getting information from their scouts, it is just a momentary snapshot of what that guy looks like right now, and it's just another piece of information. So I don't think there's it's any more or less formal than anything else. Uh, although because we are at the end of the thing, that uh, context is important when you're considering those evaluations. And so maybe the, the, they're looked at in a little different context. Guys might be tired. Guys might be rehabbing from something that kept them out for most of the regular season. Uh, and so I think that's considered in a way that is different than uh, at other times during the year. 
okay. in a way that is maybe exclusive to Instructs. Uh, but or the but, Arizona Fall League, I, I know that there yeah. are sometimes reports, uh, reports for players who are at Arizona Fall League, especially if they've played a full minor league season. Season, it'll say uh, might be might be exhibiting signs of fatigue. Sure. Yeah. Yep. It's and it's again, it's one of the things like it's hard. It's one of the things that makes it makes it harder to evaluate at this time of year. Uh, but I think you know that. There, there are always extenuating circumstances when you're looking at a guy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that we're a little more familiar with these, and uh, so that's why I think they get talked about a little bit more. Okay, so you are you're four Myers. I believe that the am I correct in saying the Red Sox are based in that area? Yeah, Twins and Red Sox are here. Okay, okay, and uh, either of those clubs. I know those clubs are the are the guys. Wait, you say you were at a game yesterday? Yeah, I was the. I got into town late Tuesday, and it's today's Friday, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, so I got into you town late on Tuesday, and Wednesday I did Twins and Orioles, and then yesterday I did Twins and Rays, uh, and then I'll be doing like the Red Sox and Twins the next couple days before I head north. To go whatever other uh... Orlando, you know, I want to see the Braves, uh, and I'm trying to piece together who else I'm all going to see. Houston, maybe Detroit and Washington. Those are the four teams that sort of like, they cluster together in Florida. Mm-hmm. So like the the Rays, Orioles, Twins, and Red Sox just sort of play each other throughout the duration of instructional league. The Pirates, Phillies, Yankees, uh, and who else is up there? Um, I forget which other. There's one other team in the northwest part of the state that that's escaping me right now. But like they just sort of clustered it to reduce travel. So the Toronto, Toronto Blue Jays. Yes, that's it. Up in Dunedin. Yeah, Dunedin. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, the Astros, Braves, Tigers, and Nationals all clump together like that sort of central portion of the state. So that's who I'm. I'm trying to figure out who's going to. Pitch maybe if I can and and try to be as efficient as possible before I head home. The uh, uh, okay, so so what? So do you have you? Are there guys in particular? Are there? Did you go? So for example, you're at this. We uh, are at a Twins Red Sox game. Did you go with the ideas? How I'm particularly. I find this one player. I'm very excited to see him. This will be my first look or my first look in a while. Or alternatively, are you saying you just look out and you say I'm looking for. Someone to impress me. Uh, it's both. Um, it happened yesterday. Tuesday was or Wednesday was bad. Like the Orioles and Twins, basically, was basically their B squads played that day. That was pretty rough. Um, but you know, you go to see draft picks that you didn't see when they were in college or high school. Uh, you go to see the guys who signed on July second. Uh, so. I haven't run into Wander Javier yet, who was one of the uh, the bigger J2 signings the Twins have had recently. Um, but, like, he's a guy that was sort of on my list. And But yesterday, uh, Huascar Enoa threw for the Twins, who's a guy who had really terrific numbers for them in the low minors this year. He's Michael Enoa's brother. So, like, I went... And when he, when I checked the roster, is you know, see the guy take the mound, you look at the number, you check the roster, and I saw it was him, I was stoked about that. Um, and then the Rays had a guy who I hadn't heard of touching 98 later in the day. So like, there's, there's both. Um, 
but yeah, you, you can't uh, you can't come out here with without an open mind because there's just there's just too many players to keep track of to, to you know to think that you know who all the guys are going in. Right, and at that age, I assume that we're, we're discussing players here who are between what sixteen and twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, uh, I have to look at the roster, but I think the oldest player I've seen on any uh, Instructs roster so far is like twenty three. Uh, you know, some of the older college guys, but, um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's skews young. It certainly skews young. And it really, right. did, and uh, a lot of development can occur in that, in that time frame. Yeah. Um, and some of the teams like the Padres have so many players around that age group and at the lower levels that they need, they have two instructional league teams. They have an advanced team, uh, and, and just a, a regular, uh, team. So like when I went to go see them, play the Rangers earlier this week, they had two games going at the same time. Uh, and, you know, not just me, but like all the scouts that were there, there were uh, probably like two dozen of them bouncing back and forth between both games, trying to see everybody if they could. Um, and it makes for, it's quite a scene <laughs> to see, you know, and all the coaches are doing it too. Uh, Cause they got to try to see everyone they can. I like the idea of, I assume that to some degree, the, the, the fact that the, Padres have two teams. This is a result of the aggressive um, international scouting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a product of AJ Preller's presence in the organization. Yeah, I had a scout there that day who had seen not just those games, but uh, some of their workouts earlier that day. Told me that in the more than a decade he's been covering instructional league in Arizona that this was the most talent a single team has had during that time. Which is is exciting for the Padres. Of course, it's also, um, I don't think it's a secret at this point that uh, AJ Preller, at least a couple of occasions in his career, has used creative means by which to acquire talent. Yeah. Does that sound fair? Uh Uh-huh. I think that's more than fair. Yeah. I think I like the idea of AJ Preller I like devising, like riffing off of this two-team system, you know, where maybe he considers introducing it at the major league level. So there's like two, like any given night, there are two Padres teams playing, and he can maybe, you know, well, maybe this one's going to win. Maybe is better. I don't know. I don't know exactly him how he's going to employ it, but I trust him to to do it in a way that uh, will most benefit the Padres. How do you feel about some of that stuff? Because, mm. like, of of all the the rumors I've heard about what goes on in, with talent acquisition, not just and not just internationally, where it's it is certainly more prevalent, and some of the things I've heard are more uh, malignant in nature. Mm. Um, you know, some of the stuff that he that he is purported to have done feels kind of like, yeah, whatever. I get it. You're trying to win, but I, you know, I don't know. It feels relatively, so you're not, you're not, I, what I hear you, what I, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're not necessarily endor, endorsing his actions, but you're saying in the context of um, other things, other uh, alleged activities, you don't necessarily regard things for which he's been caught and punished and, particularly egregious. I think that there are people, uh, you know, who are scouting or in some position of talent acquisition power 
who commit infractions that are victimless. Like the stuff that the Red Sox got banged for back in July, mm-hmm. like who cares? <laughs> like I, you know, the kids got paid more than they would have, and that's it. Like what you know, I, you know, I just have a hard time taking any sort of umbrage with that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the in the particular case of Preller, it does seem as though when you're effing with other other teams, teams. major league yeah, rosters. That's a problem. Yeah, I think probably that's yeah. that's going to result. Also, of course, uh, not just in baseball, um, but I assume in the world. Um, sometimes people are not necessarily punished. People are punished not for the crime, not for the worst crime they committed, right? So you have like get it, it's the equivalent of getting Al Capone on uh, tax, tax evasion. Yeah. Because you can't necessarily – it's harder to prove some of the other things. Yeah, or O.J. Simpson being in jail for kidnapping and armed robbery. Right. Wait. Yeah. Is he really in jail? I've, I have not yeah. followed uh, – yeah. it's not important what I think about O.J. Simpson or how much I know about his life, it uh, turns out. How do you – what if I told you that there were people who theorized he, went, he, un, he underwent a disassociative fugue? Uh, oh, okay. Truly, does not believe that he killed his wife because he's become a completely different person. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's fine to say that. Um, I mean, it uh, opens up a number of things, right? I believe. Uh, are, you from, are you familiar with um, Internet Podcast Philosophy Bites, ho- hosted by Nigel Wolberton? No. Yeah. Well, at one point there was a discussion there, as I'm sure there was, uh, there's discussions elsewhere about uh, essentially, um, the relationship between neuroscience and crime, right? Yeah. And you hear, you hear occasions of people who commit horrible acts, uh, and then only, and then you find out that it's the, that they have a tumor, you know? So is it, are they, are they the products? Yeah. Are they essentially just the products? I mean, we're all the products of our dumb chemicals, right? Uh-huh. So I guess it's uh, – I'm glad that I do not have to decide um, the guilt or the possible uh, punishment of the people who've committed crimes while under the influence of those dumb chemicals. I try to keep my own nose clean, Eric Longenhagen. And I suggest you do the same. I'm working on that. But again, like I said, the allergies here are, are very extreme. That's a good point. All right. So what's your next – wait, have you seen – have you done anything else over the, uh, since we last spoke over the last fortnight that you uh, particularly care just, to – You know, just prepping for the org lists and uh, – Oh, those – that's what a tremendous burden. Yeah, and writing the uh, – It takes so long and you have to produce <laughs> so many of them, Eric. <laughs> I know. Um, but I think it'll be fine. Um, Would you describe it as a Sisyphean task? You, you're going to have to. <laughs> Sisyphus. He's the character. He, he flew too close to the sun with his father. Isn't that Icarus? <laughs> <laughs> no, he looked, Sisyphus looked in a pool of water and fell, fell in love with his own reflection. I know that that's not right either. <laughs> Look at this guy's classical education. <laughs> the only that's reason, a, let's, I mean, let's be honest. The only reason I know the Icarus story is because of heavyweights. Okay. So, you know, I'm not going to 
sit here and, and pretend that that's not true. <laughs> which which person listening to this podcast was not introduced to Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, and Sigmund Freud, if not by means of you know 1980s oh, action comedy? Excellent adventure. <laughs> excellent adventure. I don't. So you know you got to find your path somehow. Yeah. Eric. Um, do you have it's any so thoughts? Too. Do you have? <laughs> do you have any thoughts? Do you even? I'm going to say a name. I'm interested if you is not Sisyphus or Mary Curie. The name is the name is Eric Pardinho. The 15 year old British uh, Brazilian kid. Yeah. I did not know about that kid until yesterday. Okay, so when I think many of us were introduced to Eric Pardinho yesterday, he's a 15 year old pitching for Team Brazil. In the what the qualifiers, I guess, of the yeah. World Baseball Classic in Brooklyn, and he threw what he he touched ninety four. Yeah. Okay, so you're not necessarily. Oh, all right, here's a question: You are a guy who takes considerable interest in uh, baseball and also uh, in analyzing prospects, right? Mm-hmm. Here is. This is an unfair question I'm about to ask you, but it's leading to some other unfair questions. So get ready. Okay. At any given time, what? Uh, how many people in the world do you think can throw 90 or above? Um, Very unfair. Probably several thousand. Okay, thousands, we'll say. Yeah, thousands of people. And – now, when you're saying that, are you thinking just the talent that's available to baseball clubs? Or are you thinking like, well, there's maybe a cricketer in India or there's maybe um, like a handball player who plays her, mm-hmm. you know, PSG? Like, do, are you counting that too? Yeah, I, yeah. Anybody who can who could pick up a baseball and chuck it, you know, you know, with like a full crow hop or just mm-hmm. like on a mound. Right. Uh, yeah, like yeah, a few thousand people. A few thousand people, right? Sure. And and but of course the the way that th- that things are constructed, uh, a decent number of those thousands, right? Mm-hmm. A decent percentage of them are the United States because of how things work. I guess I don't know. Yeah. We have good nutrition in this country, sure. And we also have like sweet, like a lot of Swedish people. I guess right? They're big. I mean, we got a lot of big people in this country. Some would say too big. Some would say the people in this country are too big. And I think that's a, I think that's a, I think there's an argument to be made for that. My point is, my point is you probably, as someone who's situated yourself to, to know such things, you probably, what percentage do you think of, uh, of the, of all the people in the world who can throw 90 or higher? What, what, how many of them do you know? Do you either by name or reputation? Um, you could probably figure it out. I mean, you figure thirty major league teams, mm-hmm. everyone on the major league pitching staff, save for maybe one or two guys. You know, your Brad Ziegler types probably throws ninety or better. Uh, and we're not even talking about position players yet. Who, pro- who several of whom could probably throw a baseball over ninety miles an hour if they wanted to as well. Mm-hmm. But even if we're just talking about pitchers. Uh, so you feel like 300 at the major league level and then probably another 20 guys in every system who, you know, whose names I know because they're legitimate pitching prospects of some kind. Uh, you know, we're already approaching like a thousand 
guys. And that's just guys. That's guys who are who are playing baseball. Yeah, and, who are already and, in the system. Baseball too. Right. So you know, and uh, then in the draft, I mean, well, that's I'm interested. So at any in any year in college, how many guys are hitting ninety? Probably, probably like eight eight hundred to a thousand more guys. Okay. Yeah. And then in the high school ranks. Um, that's when it probably starts to thin out. Uh, I'm in the middle of I'm like twelve hundred words into writing up the right-handed pitchers I saw on the showcase circuit. Okay. And I think I probably have, I think I probably have close to 30 names that I started with on the outline that that will probably get cut down. And every one of those guys throws 90. I don't think I've written up anybody, say for one kid who I, uh, who hasn't crested 90 with me there. Is there, if if a guy, if a, if a kid is pitching in a baseball game. High school baseball game somewhere in the United States, and he's throwing 90 miles per hour. Is there a team interested in him? Probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It would be a rare thing. You're saying like they would have to. This kid would have to live in a, like a very rural area, maybe, or there would have to be extenuating circumstances for him to be throwing 90 and not have a team interested in him, or at least at least a D1 school. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, if you're if you're in high school and throwing 84. Yeah. You're probably being monitored by some division one schools. Okay. So, so you think 84 or 85 to the yeah. sake of, uh, you think that's a, that's a cutoff for D1. Essentially. And if you're left handed, you, you could be throwing 80, 82. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll be of interest too. This is great information. I want to tell you, Eric. I don't know how I never, why I never got here before, but this is, this is stuff. I'm so happy to be learning it. Like uh, whatever that neurochemical is released into your brain when you're learning new things, it's it's occurring right now. That's so good. I, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that. Um. Uh. So I guess what I was I, I let out to, that was all opened up that line of um, inquiry by this um. Event we saw a 15 year old in Brazil. A 15 year old. Uh-huh. How many 15 year olds in the states right now do you think are throwing 90 miles per hour? 15 year old. We're talking about like rising high school sophomores at this point, and I just don't, I just don't know of any. Really? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's just a little bit beyond the scope of what. I'm the information that I'm seeking because it, you know, we're not talking about someone who's, who's going to be draft eligible anytime soon. So I'm just trying to worry about the things I need to worry about. Uh, but, but it's the number is probably pretty low, you know, okay. um, 94, man. Yeah. Like the, uh, there's a kid named Jacob Fennigs mm-hmm. in Idaho who is a rising high school junior. He's six seven one ninety, and is only like touching 90, 91. And, and that's like, a big person. Yeah. He's like a remarkable multi-sport athlete. Uh, in, you know, and there's, there's some gray there because it, it's a, it's a, an athlete from Idaho. Uh, it's not like he's been scouted 
the same way someone from Southern California or uh, Metro Georgia would be scouted to this point. But right, and I, but I assume that this this adds to a bit of the there's a, there's a sort of uh, a mystery, a, a joyous mystery surrounding him. Yeah, uh, uh, Fennings, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's and I think this is one of the things because um, the other thing I've been doing recently is writing my piece for the Hardball Times annual, and one of the the huge bummers about normalization of relations between the United States and Canada is that that mystique is going to evaporate completely. <laughs> you know, there's there's not going to be we're going to get to a point where uh, there's not there's no such thing as the Cuban guy that not many scouts have seen because it's just going to be easy to, to go to come and go as, as we all please. Uh, so there's something fun about that, um, that mystique. And there's also something kind of scary about it when you, when you're supposed to evaluate that player, <laughs> uh, a lot of times with secondhand information, but, um, but yeah, I, as far as domestic prospects go, that that phrase doesn't usually apply. And like I've got like video of Fennigs and stuff from Area Code games, uh, but yeah, it's there's no such thing as legends anymore. That you know those stories you hear about Bo Jackson doing ridiculous athletic things when he he was a kid. You know, because if that stuff happens today, it's on someone taped it with their cell phone. Right. Uh, and there's something cool about that, but then there's also something that you know, piece of me that that makes it's kind of saddened by that. Right. There's less of uh, there's nothing there to solve really. Yeah. Everyone, it's it's available to everyone. I should say that if anyone is interested in uh, learning more about Jacob Fennig, that is J A C O B P F E N N I G S. Yeah. Looks like he lives in Coeur d'Alene or somewhere near Coeur d'Alene, something like that. Is that right? So, but but in in this uh, young player. From Brazil, we have a 15-year-old who's touching 94, and I, I, I seem to be sitting 90-92. Yeah, I didn't see it yesterday because I was out at that game. But uh, I heard, yeah, like 90-92 up to 94 with movement. <laughs> so uh, it sounds like the kid's a little bit physically mature for a 15-year-old, not one of those 6'3", uh, 180 types of bodies where you're confident he's going to add two, three plus miles an hour to his fastball as he ages, but like still a 15 year old bump at 94 is pretty ridiculous. Right. So, um, what does that mean? Like just based off of those two, well, I guess you have three facts, right? Mm -hmm. 15, 90, 92, touching 94. Those are the first two facts. And the third fact is mature body. What is that? What do you think that places him as a prospect? Well, as a Brazilian, we're talking July 2nd stuff. So July 2nd pitchers are hard to gauge because, the, you know, the the other people in his class are likely going to be throwing 86, 89, uh, and, but, but are probably more physically projectable. So you're, you're kind of comparing apples and oranges a little bit. Um, players like this, uh, and in that market, typically get a dollar figure assigned to them rather than like a draft round grade type of thing. Okay. Um, right. And that's, you know, I, I'm not 
as comfortable doing that with a player I haven't seen. And just in general, you know, scouting uh, 16-year-olds and trying to put dollar figures on them isn't something I've ever really done. Uh, so it's hard to does say. It feel, what percentage dirty does it feel? To be talking about a 15-year-old and about how much money he's worth? Yeah. It's like it, like probably like, like 48% dirt, dirty. Okay, so it's right. It's approaching the fifty percent mark. Is the point? Yeah, well, it's good. It's not as bad when you're talking about it in a positive light. Like this kid is a good prospect because of how hard he throws. Right. Uh, so that's nice for the kid because he's going to get paid. Uh, and it is something that he's entering into voluntarily. I don't know a whole lot about Eric Pardino's background. I don't know that he's trying to escape poverty like so many of the Latin American players from Venezuela and the Dominican Republic are trying to do mm-hmm. where it feels as though they're in such a place of desperation that someone's taking advantage of them and it's still what's best for the kid because they have there's no other way for them to have any sort of uh prosperous life. Oh yeah, that's a good point. That that's that's an interesting and terrifying prospect, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, that someone it could be in the process of being exploited, and yet it's also the best. It's also the best case scenario for that person. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, that's a that's a that's a uh, that's a Venn diagram at which the, you don't want to find yourself the middle mm-hmm. within which you don't want to find yourself. Well, I obviously have problems of my own because I don't I didn't know how to put the preposition the the end of that sentence. So I think that I understand suffering. (laughs) (laughs) We all have our our demons, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Sorry. Just taking a sip of coffee. And, uh, so, all right. We talked about how that's interesting. Eric, you don't want to put a dollar sign up, but, and you don't know if he's necessarily escaping poverty, which is, as you mentioned, is the case with some of those. But, uh, I mean, I will say that there, teenagers who throw this hard, depending on who's looking at them, sometimes uh, it's not always seen as positive. Okay. Which seems weird to say, but like there are people who will be like, "Yeah, you know, he's already 15 to throw 94." Like, what? And if, if for no other reason than because it's so rare, uh, it does turn some people off. Well, I suppose too, if you look at uh, aging curves for pitchers and pitcher velocity, they're not, they're not ever really promising. I mean, they're mostly just start. If you're start, if you're throwing as hard as a major leaguer throws, then probably the next step is to you're throwing less hard than that mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. Yeah. I think um, to really, I think projectable, Pitcher bodies. It's gotta be pretty extreme. Like you, I, when I said 6'3", 180, like that's, that's close to what it's gotta be, you know, in that, in that range for there to be more velocity coming. Because the workload in pro ball is so much more intense than it is when you're throwing once a week in high school that a lot of guys never throw harder than they do in high school. And a lot of times I'm just looking for someone whose body is going to develop enough to counterbalance that workload and just maintain the velocity they have in high school. Um, so like, you know, a guy like Tristan McKenzie, 
uh, I'll project velocity onto a body like that. When you see 17-year-old Tristan McKenzie and he's built like Gumby. Okay, so wait, so yeah, just give uh, some biographical data. Okay, about so Tristan McKenzie, I'm going to look up exactly how uh, much he weighed in high school. But he has – this is like as projectable a pitcher's body as I've ever seen. Like he was super skinny uh, and some people thought he was so – Narrowly built that it was never going to come. Okay, so he was 6'5", 160. Uh, uh, he's 6'5", 160 on Perfect Games website, which I assume is is probably what he weighed going into the the All American game that year. Which is borderline. Is that isn't that borderline malnourishment? Yeah, like if you w- were to see him, then it is just like you know his wrists and everything was just skinny all the way through. Um. But he's, you know, he's thrown harder since he, the, the Indians drafted him. Uh, that was the, that was the one body where I was like, if anyone's ever gonna add velocity, it's this guy, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, but it's a difficult thing because sometimes it just never comes. Some guys are just always gonna be skinny, and it just doesn't come. What did Carl Edwards look like? Currently pitching in relief for the for the Cubs. Uh, I want to say that he's one of those types of guys who's never filled out. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's had anything to do with the struggles that he had as a prospect when he was starting. What's he listed at? Probably like six three one. Is he like six three one sixty? Six three one seventy is listed at now. Okay, but yeah, but I mean, so it's probably fair to imagine that. Mm. But um, yeah, you know, when Edwards was a prospect, he'd have issues holding his stuff deeper into games. Right. Uh, which when I a lot of times when I would see him, it would be in some sort of All Star game type of setting, or in the fall league where you're only throwing a few innings before you exit, and uh, you saw all three pitches. You're like, "Yep, this guy's got a starter's repertoire. It's fine." But when scouts would see him during, in the middle of the season. Uh, you know, come fourth, fifth inning, everything was was down, and I don't know if necessarily that's because he lacked that physicality, you know, because he was a slightly built guy, or if there was just something else going on. Uh, but uh, but it is something that you know was was discussed. He's listed at at a certain point, Carl uh, Carl Edwards as at six three one fifty five. Okay, which is quite slight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hey, let me. Uh, I would like to um, uh, pursue a different line of questioning right now. Is that okay? Sure. I was. Uh, it's, uh, I wanted to ask you. It's. It's a place at which I arrived. You um, know, um, I do I did a piece uh, with you know Saris for today Friday. We did a piece on Jarrell Cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, we've discussed, of course, Cotton um, a couple a couple times. Um, he's an interesting prospect, right? He throws relatively hard, but then again, he's only, I think he's probably only listed at six feet, and he's probably shorter than that. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I that. And he has he has a plus. I think you've described it as a plus plus changeup. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's a, here's here's uh, what's interesting about. This version of, uh, 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 you know, Jarrell Cotton threw three starts as a major leaguer, and he might have a start coming this weekend, which will be omitted from our conversation because 
uh, you know, the future is not ours to see, as Italian people everywhere are want to exclaim. The um, in terms of pitch his pitches, it is not actually the changeup which has been his most productive. It has been his cutter, mm. his cut, his cut fastball uh, by the methodology um, used at this. Um, at our site, and of course, we have some, there's some uh, player, it's a little bit difficult to, to track in some cases because, um, you know, the pitch effects data differs from the other ones. But, it, you know, the, the main thing that you can do as a pitcher is you can strike people out. And, uh, it's, it's actually his cutter which has the highest whiff rate. And it's not like he hasn't thrown it a lot. I think he's thrown it over 50 times through three games. Um, so if you think about it in terms of usage, that's roughly – I think he's throwing it roughly 20% of the time. So that's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a 22% whiff rate on it. The changeup is about 16. League average for a changeup is about 14-15. So he's just a little bit above average there. And he hasn't thrown that pitch many more times. maybe 25% of the time. The cutter, though, uh, 22% whiff rate. And I think the average for the – the average for the cutter, league average. Well, the league, so the cutter is a difficult pitch, right? And this is Eno um, mentions this because sometimes you have a cutter that's just a little bit off the fastball, right? Yeah. Like you think you the classic Mariano Rivera cutter, but then you have some cut, cutters that uh, deep with deep, um, you know, usually it's a it's a horizontal movement. There's some vertical movement too, but you know they they look a lot more like a slider, mm-hmm. so it's difficult. But it got, I was thinking, I was asking Eno about this. I was like, well, this is strange. And also, I mean, can you think of any other cases where the pitch that's supposed to be the showcase pitch, the showcase pitch is not performing or is being outperformed by another pitch in the repertoire? Yes. And I was thinking, what, I was thinking, wow, this must pose a real challenge for someone like Longenhagen, whose job it is to assess these players. And, uh, I'm sure you come across this, you know, uh, not infrequently. Um, Aaron Nola is a guy like that. Uh, specifically his curveball. Okay. When Nola was coming out of LSU, he was a fastball changeup guy. And the curveball was hard to evaluate because just on pure stuff, it was like a 45 50, you know, not a whole lot of depth there, not a whole lot of power to it. And what, when Nola, reached the big leagues, this was a question that was brought up because his curveball, uh, I think by those metrics, was not only outperforming his other pitches, but I think was like per pitch one of the more effective pitches in all of baseball, certainly one of the more effective curveballs. And this is where those rate stats are incongruous with just uh, – visual scouting because the everything that a pitcher does impacts the effectiveness of his his pitch you know the pitch in question sure uh, whereas if you're just grading a pitch it is just purely in a vacuum how good is this pitch uh without any context at all uh you know and so with nola at least this is my theory the curveball was playing up because he had an incredibly funky delivery. Uh, he's polydactyl. 
uh, and, you know, had like sort of a lower arm slot. There were a lot of moving parts, but he was able to repeat it and stay healthy because he's double jointed, or at least that, that, uh, was one other weird thing about him. Um, and from that slot with that deception, I guess is, is a generic way to put it. It's just hard for right-handed pitchers to pick up the baseball at all. Uh, so a 45 curveball might play on paper like a, like a plus curveball. Uh, and similarly, there are pitchers like Kenta Maeda. Mm-hmm. Maeda, the, all the reports on Maeda, and I think this, I think did Eno write about Maeda recently too? Yeah, and he actually cites uh, Maeda as, a, as an example of this with regard to his curveball? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sequencing is important to this too, and this is, uh, why I think Maeda's curveball has on paper been very effective is that he throws it at opportune times. He and whoever the Dodgers catcher has been when he's uh, been starting have identified when those those times are that he can sort of squeeze the most juice out of his curveball. And guy, those lollipop curveballs don't play as swing and miss pitches, uh, you know, in like 0-2 counts. Uh, they're get-me-over-first-pitch strikes. And uh, I think that that's uh, – and I, I think I wrote about – when I wrote about Jeff Hoffman, I said eventually – I think that's what his curveball will be used for, uh, while the slider sort of takes over more of a swing and miss role. So I think when, in regard to Cotton, uh, I haven't watched enough of his major league starts to be able to tell you with any sort of certainty why his cutter on paper is playing better than that changeup. Uh, I would suspect that it's something like what I'm describing – but I don't know specifically what. No, no, no. I think it's I think it's great what you're talking about. And I, the 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 case with Nola is very interesting. It is, just to add some numbers to that particular conversation, as a major leaguer for Nola, the 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 whiff rate on the curveball is just under twenty percent. Uh, and the next the next closest pitch is his changeup, which he throws you know like a third of the t- the time that he does does the uh, does the curveball, and that's at like thirteen percent. Um, now, obviously, that's not the uh, that's not the only positive result a pitcher can have, but it's I think it's probably the best demarcation for. I mean, it's going to be the most effective, right? Mm. Um, he's throwing that and he's throwing that curve a bunch. Um, so that's you know that's a suggestion that it's been quite an effective pitch. But as you're saying, context matters, and that's where I get with Eno. But I just as a as a talent evaluator, like you're talking about, you know, um, being down in Florida. For instructs, Eric, not extended instructs. Uh-huh. You're down there, and you're attempting, you, you know, uh, you're attempting to say, "Well, is this guy showing anything special? Is this guy showing anything special?" I assume you're not able to examine the pictures long enough. And even if you were, if, if it would, if if there would be any relevance there anyway, to determine whether a guy's relatively pedestrian-looking curveball is somehow, as it is for Kenta Maeda, is somehow going to fit perfectly into the rest of his repertoire, such as to be a, an effective major league pitch. When when I was working for the Iron Pigs and was just there every day and watching the same five AAA type pitchers like Drew Carpenter and stuff, you know, pitch every fifth day, that's when you that's when I learned that that was a thing. Like that's when I sort of realized, oh. This is a thing that impacts 
the effectiveness of each of these pitches independent of just the, their their pure stuff. But yeah, you're right. Like it is maybe if I were a better scout, I'd be able to pick that sort of stuff out. Um, but yeah, like like you said, it does, it is something that at least for me requires an extended viewing and probably over multiple starts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, well, of course, at the same time, right, you have someone uh, like Lucas Giolito, who's now made four starts, pitched about 20 innings as a major leaguer. And actually, you know, he's had success. I mean, I I, so I should say the stuff is is widely praised, right? Mm-hmm. Including by yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, and also the numbers as a minor leaguer this year, the sort of numbers that you think would be predictive of success were were decent. They were not exceptional, but they were they were pretty decent. And he had he's put he put together seven really good starts at AAA, which is always quite promising. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's uh, one of just a small collection of pitchers this year to make a start and also to have a negative strikeout and walk rate differential, right? More more walks than strikeouts. Mm-hmm. And uh, which would suggest to you that this has not been, I mean, he's only gotten swinging strikes in 7% of his pitches. Now, I would assume that some of what we're discussing is going to get lumped into, rightly or wrongly, perhaps in the case of Giolito, rightly, it, there's going to be some element of command there, right? Yeah, I think so. So you could say, look at this, this pitch has excellent velocity. It has excellent movement. The shape is, this is exactly what you want out of it. But also he doesn't know where to put it. Like he can't put it where he wants to. And so if that's, if that's the case, then you say, well, he's got poor command. He's got poor command and that's going to lead to poor results. In the case of, like you said, uh, Kenta Maeda, this curveball, I guess he could put it where he wants to, but it doesn't look particularly great. Mm-hmm. Or, you, or you could say, like, this pitch doesn't look really great. He's having results. Therefore, it must be a function of command. I would assume that's also a conclusion that uh, that even the smartest of talent ev- evaluators would reach because unless you've really been able to study a guy, that that's sort of the, the default explanation, right? Yeah, uh, I think – I think so. I think a lack of movement on a pitch after the grade has sort of been put on the pitch based purely on velocity is another thing that, that, uh, sort of leaned on to explain away issues like this. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, like with Mark Appel, hitters and scouts talk about how just easy it is to time the baseball out of his hand. His delivery in general is paced in such a way that it's just easy to sync up with as a hitter. It's easy to to find the baseball out of Mark Appel's hand because everything happens in a way that you just it's hard. It's even hard to sort of explain. Uh, but like when I saw Appel in Fall League a few years ago, and he was you know up to ninety six, ninety seven. I was like, oh, okay, so this guy's fine, and it, his struggles have just been a product of the Cal League and this and that. Um, and it wasn't, you know, till later talking to more people where they're like, no, you have to understand, even before the ball is released, hitters are starting to try to, to pick up information. You know, that it's not necessarily the way hitters would describe it, but they're already sort of receiving something from the pitcher. Oh, if I can, if I can uh, place an asterisk 
next to this comment you've just made, Eno, again, uh, posted a great thing. I, I don't know if it was earlier this week or towards the end of last week. He, he, he asked batters, he asked a lot of hitters, and he also um, referenced the science essentially of visual – you know, the relationship between uh, visual faculties and cognition. And you know, there are certain things that batters even can think they see, which a, a scientist would tell you that's impossible. But um, like um, – and I, I'm forgetting some of the precise language of it right now. But the basic idea is like um, what it comes down to is that hitters have this ability to gather information right even before the ball leaves the hand. They're not actually seeing it. It's just that they've seen so many – Similar situations that their that their mind and and brain to get work together to um, uh, connect some dots. Mm-hmm. I, I've explained it poorly, but I think that no, I think I, I understand exactly what you mean because I think I have some ability to do that after having watched guys for you know so long. Like you can, <sighs> Appel is the most glaring example of someone whose stuff is underperformed because of this thing that I can think of. Mm-hmm. But there are certainly there are other pitchers. I'm trying to think of someone on the opposite end of the spectrum. Who? Well, here, can I can I can I can I come up with someone? Sure. I because I, I asked it was the opposite end of the spectrum. Would you describe it as a player who has the opposite, who has decidedly not electric stuff, uh, and yet has experienced considerable success with it? Sure. Yeah. Kyle Hendricks, Cy Young candidate Kyle Hendricks. Uh huh. I was asking, I said, can you think of, cause I asked, you know, that exact question. I said, can you think of anyone with just like a totally banal, as <laughs> like a banal repertoire, but essentially appears to be having success owing to magic? And he was like, yeah, he was like, yeah, Ky- I mean, Kyle Hendricks, Kyle Hendricks barely breaks 90 if he, if he does it at all. Um, and he's, Maybe he's, maybe he succeeds because he's got these two change-ups or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it all almost all appears to be uh, just as you're mentioning when we you know we sort of started this particular bit of the conversation. It's a question of each pitch relative to the one before it and after it. The pitches that could potentially be coming. Kyle Hendricks appears to really benefit from this. I know that also Josh Kalku now works for a team, but I remember um, when he was. Doing work with the earliest versions of pitch effects, he did a really cool thing. He presented a visual of Ted Lilly, like if you're the batter or the catcher, what the difference the difference between Ted Lilly's fastball and curveball, what those must look like. He threw a fastball that sat high in the zone a lot, and which was not an electric pitch at all, but. He would also start his curveball, which wasn't quite a good pitch. He would start that in the same place in the top of the zone. And until like, you know, halfway, three quarters away, you know, some amount of the way, the trajectories were identical for a batter. Yeah. So at some point you're like, oh crap. <laughs> you know, like you don't, like here's, here's like a guy, Ted Lilly, who's like 5'10 and throwing an 88 mile per hour fastball, but you just can't tell the difference between that and his curveball until the ball's on top of you. Yeah, Kyle Hendricks. Kyle Hendricks. What do you think? As a as a as a possibility? Sure. Yeah, I think that that's. I think there. Uh, Hendricks. I want to say the command is so incredible that that's probably the crux of it. But I think what we're just trying to, to get to is that there's just there's more to fastballs than pure velocity. 
But saying that is sort of lazy because the, the list of things that contributes to a fastball, a fastball's effectiveness is, is so astronomically long, mm-hmm. uh, that it's, that it's lazy to just, to just say that without, you know, really trying to dive into what it is. Well, if you're looking for, I think if you're looking to find the correlation, right? If you if if your organization says, "Listen, we can only pick up one variable on these pitchers. That's all we can pick up before we t- before we you know attempt to sign them or before we attempt to assess them." Yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to pick up velocity, yeah. right? Spin rate and, is becoming one of those objective variables, though. Okay, it depends on the team, uh, but I know. I've heard at least there's one team who's sort of based their a, a larger portion of their amateur pitcher evaluations on what they get off of a track man during workouts. And if you and what do they think spin rate's going to do? I know Eno's written about it, but I, I I'm not re- recalling the is it a question of de- is it essentially a proxy for deception? Uh, I don't know if it's a proxy for deception as much as it's a proxy for I mean you know the, the correlation between spin rate and swinging strikes it's it's i think it's pretty strong okay and i think there are teams that are identifying that and are just trying to get in on the ground floor of that sort of thing so you could probably look at who was drafted early uh, among high school pitchers and find na- find like the couple of names that weren't mentioned pr- heavily <laughs> Among the the other high school pitchers atop, atop the draft, and figure out which team I'm talking about. Uh, but but yeah, like I there I someone told me that there was a team that drafted a kid who I thought was overdrafted, and that they based the draft pick on a pre-draft workout and the TrackMan data that they got from that workout. Wow, and that's I mean that's not. Sorry, I did not add much to that conversation, but wow is an interesting – I mean it's a um, – There's a theory. Did you know that the Padres and the Rangers are uh, – they're, they're having some of their instructional league at Petco in San Diego? I didn't know that. Yeah, so there are people who think that they're doing that because they want to turn like the StatCast stuff on for for, for that for those games. <laughs> Okay. And that's yeah. what's happening. Why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you do it? I mean, they have TrackMan on the backfield, but uh, I don't, you know, I think the StatCast stuff, yeah, I would do, I would do it. Sounds like a euphemism for something. Oh, I got TrackMan on my backfield. Oh, man. Oh, boy. <laughs> that must be that, it's that weather in Florida that you're dealing with. Yeah, it is. Very, there's a lot of just uh, chafing, just standing. There's chafing. So... Uh, you, uh, you've basically fulfilled your obligation to the program. Okay. Uh, but I want to, you want me to tell you briefly about Nintendo? Yeah, yeah. I went to university for two years in New York City mm-hmm. and I had, uh, I did actually, I experienced a dissociative fugue. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, I so said I gotta take, I was a bad student and also I was unhappy. So there wasn't really a lot of reason for me to stay there and pay a lot of money for it. Okay. So I took a year off. I didn't know what I was going to do. I worked this, that summer at a place in Maine, and then I said, I'm going to take a year off. My parents were like, that's a terrible idea, but also you don't – we don't know what to do with you as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so I lived in Seattle for a year. And my first job in Seattle was a, I got by way of a temp agency at N- Nintendo headquarters in Redmond, Washington. And I worked as a customer service person. So people would call in. I had a computer in front of me. People would call in and I would attempt either to, I could do a couple things. If they had a problem, um, I would uh, maybe try and help them set up their Nintendo or they wanted, uh, if they wanted gameplay help, that was a, a more qualified layer of customer service agent. I would, I would forward them. <laughs> um, if they had questions about where to buy Nintendo products, I would gladly assist them in that. And, and then, uh, Not what you was 19, uh, 2000, the year 2000, okay. year 2000, 2001. I would also sell, uh, subscriptions to Nintendo Power Magazine. Awesome. Mm-hmm. But, uh. Did you ever tell anyone to blow in, into the cartridge? No, that's the. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> uh, in fact, we would dissuade them from doing that. You wouldn't? Because the. Really? Yeah, do you know, want to know why? Why? Well, this is, this is the Nintendo explanation, I could tell you, is that in the short term, it's the moisture from your breath. Actually, that helps the conduction, I believe. Is that the word conduction? Okay. It helps the connection between the metal plates, essentially, in your Nintendo cartridge and in the system itself. But in the long term, that moisture will cause essentially rusting, cause Uh-oh. it to rust. So it helps in the short term, hurts in the long term. Is how is was the textbook explanation. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but at one point, so, uh, I've been going to school in New York and I had strong, I thought at least that I had strong positive feelings about New York City. It turns out that maybe I didn't, or I, they were misplaced a little bit. But I grew up, I, <laughs> I know that I had, um, there were certain type, there were certain things I loved about New York City. And one of them <laughs> was, um, it came to me in the form of a phone call. Uh, that I answered when I was living in Seattle. I said, hello, Nintendo, this is Karsten speaking. And this woman gets on. She goes, her first words were, just call me Pokemon Grandma. And I said, I will do that. I will do that. And she was an older Jewish woman who lived in Brooklyn. And she wanted me just to tell her about Pokemon. Was what? And I was like, oh, this is great. And we started talking about everything, her grandkids and where she lived in Brooklyn, et cetera. And I was smitten with this woman. And, uh, the conversation, it could, uh, it would say that after a while, though, I had maybe lost the thread in terms of Nintendo protocol. Okay. And, um, I received a buzz on my phone that I see was the manager, my supervisor. I said, uh, so I said, uh, oh, excuse me for a moment, ma'am. I just have to take a, I just have to brief, my manager has a question. And he said, uh, he said, maybe we don't, he said, you've been on this phone call for 19 and a half minutes. And he said, it now might be too long. And I said, all right, I'll wrap it up. And then, uh, he, and then he said, when you're done wrapping up, why don't you come see me? <laughs> so I did do that. I wasn't actually fired. I was not fired, yeah. but it, I was, um, it was made clear to me that um, if I continued doing that, and I, but then I said to myself, I had so much fun doing that. So on, uh, I wanted to have a, maybe a job where I have a little bit more in the way of personal freedom, you know. Mm-hmm. So on the way home, uh, there was a job opening at a uh, kind of artsy, relatively artsy movie 
movie house, film house uh, in the U District of Seattle. So I applied for that job that day and uh, received it. And, uh, you know, I found out within a week or whatever, and that's what I did for the rest of my time in Seattle. So there you go. That was very nice. Yeah. It's ironic that uh, I got here and my little cousins both immediately were like, Eric, our Wii isn't working. Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to. How old are they? Uh, uh, eight and... Eliza is in sixth grade, but I'm not sure exactly how old she is. Uh, huh. That's, I've got to say, now they could be perfectly charming and able children, but I feel like they're also, like in terms of their ages, they're kind of in the sweet spot for when they fix things that adults can't. Like, did you say that to them? No, but maybe I should. Yeah, I think well, we like. It's also the lightning capital of the world, I believe. So I, I think it's possible that there was just a power surge here at some point that wrecked it. Yeah. But. Uh, do you think that there's any. Yeah. Do you ever kind of like, listen, like, uh, now listen, I, for, I think probably for the benefit of the world, I don't have a lot of interactions with children. Mm-hmm. Same. You know, like, yeah. And, but like when kids say, like, could you fix this? I kind of want to be like, you know, there are kids your age who get stuck in mines. <laughs> and it just – so figure it out. Like yeah. there are kids your Minecraft? age who – Minecraft? No. Nor, or Mein Kampf, although that's, Mein Kampf. that's a darker it's a darker version of Children it. Children get stuck in Mein Kampf? Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You ever seen Mein Kampf in someone's library? Like you're just visiting their home? No. And casually you see Mein Kampf? No, I've seen it, but I think I've seen it like – it was always a thing that we'd point to and giggle at in like the high school library or somewhere. Giggle at Mein Kampf? What, what's the – like what's the <laughs> – Like just the fact that it was there. Well, it's, it's that's the thing. Like, I think it's a hard book to have casually in a library. Like to me it should be like under glass or something. To be like, it's well, we like we always just assume we always just assume that everybody knew like uh, so one of the more, more evil human beings to ever exist wrote that thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ever something anyone was interested in reading in earnest, other than maybe to to mine the depths of, of a psyche like that just to see what it's like to go there for a while, which would have been, yeah. but I never did. Um, yeah. But it's uh, yeah. I was, I knew actually a teacher of mine in high school had it in his bookcase, and I understood I understood why. But it's also like yeah, like there's a little whiff of of darkness just walking by it. Sure, yeah. That's how I always felt. That's how I always felt. Anyway, uh, this has been great, Eric. Good. I'm Each glad. Impro- re- I think they're really improving. Audio quality is good. I, I have no microphone here. Work- it's just. I, it's. I think the moisture has has benefited my vocal cords. Okay. But yeah, well, the audio quality was good today. Yeah, that's good. All right. The internet well, stick, is also better here too. Yeah. Why well, you stick around for a second? Okay. Uh, but the, for the sake of the um, the program, we'll we'll stop. I'll say I'll say thank you, Eric Loganhagen. You're welcome, Carson. Let's do it. And I'll continue by saying that has been Eric Loganhagen, lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. Very well, This has been Fangraphs Audio.